Good morning. And uh, just an announcement as we uh, get started this morning. As you know, our board has been giving away the uh, DVD set, and we've given away over 400 now to uh, individuals and organizations all over the world, I think eight or nine different countries now. And the people are using these in, uh, in Bible studies and ministries around. And those online, again, if you want those, we will ship those to you at, at no charge. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for this opportunity to study, and we invite your presence and your spirit that our hearts will be brought into unity with you, our minds will come to know the truth about you. You will give us discernment and wisdom, and you'll draw us together in one accord, as you did in the upper room. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are studying lesson number 12 in our quarterly worship, and the lesson title this week is Worship in the Early Church. And if we look at Sabbath's lesson in the second paragraph, if somebody read the second paragraph, it begins at Pentecost, please. At Pentecost, after Peter's preaching and altar call before a multitude of Jews, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This text alone shows the fallacy of the idea that all the Jews rejected Jesus. So, first question I have, you notice that Peter preached, and on that same day, 3,000 individuals were baptized into the, into the church. The question, was this a good thing or a bad thing? I'm serious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm being, being serious. Good or bad? Good. How often do you see this happen today? And today's standards would be bad because they didn't know all of our doctrines. Tina's already with me here. <laughs> you see? And that's the question. How often do we see this happening today? What do, what do you think prevents us today from having 3,000 baptized in a day? Do we actually, as a Christian body, put barriers and hindrances in the way of people committing their lives to the Lord? What would happen, do you think, if we did a public campaign uh, here in, in Chattanooga, did a public outreach ministry, a, a series of lectures, a presentations, preaching, as, as Peter was doing that day, and anywhere from one to 3,000 uh, stood up and, and wanted to give their life to Christ, and wanted to become Christians, what would we do? We'd say in the front door and out the back. Would we baptize them that day? No. Why not? Do we know something better than Peter knew? Yes. Couldn't it be that a lot of these people had listened to Christ preach and that Peter was just harvesting what? Okay, I think this is a good point. So if we stand up and do a, a public outreach series, couldn't it be that other people had been planting seeds for years and, and our outreach has brought them to conviction and want to give their life to Christ? I have no problem with that. The question is, when they finally come to the point that they want to give their life to Christ, do we baptize them that day? No. Do we know something better than the apostles knew? No. Have we substituted something in the place of Bible baptism? What have we put in the place of Bible baptism? What we, we have put something. If somebody wants to give their... If we're at this meeting, and just imagine us. Put yourself in this area. We're having a meeting here in Chattanooga. Maybe down at the Tivoli. Or, and we, we've, we've, we've done a series of presentations. We have a call for, for those who want to give their life to Christ. And 400 people stand up. What will we do? We won't baptize, will we? We will do something. What do we do? No, at that moment, at that moment, what do we do? We have them come down and we say the sinner's prayer, don't we? Don't we have them come down on their knees with a pastor or somebody and say the sinner's prayer? Isn't that what we've done? What's the sinner's prayer? 
The sinner's prayer, I confess that I'm a sinner. I accept the Lord Jesus. I accept you as my Savior. Take all my sins, wash them away, write my name in the Lamb's book of life. I can pardon me from all my wrongdoings. And, you know, the, basically the, the, con- sinner, the prayer of confession and acceptance of Christ as your Savior. What happens when I'm baptized and then the church changes the doctrines? <laughs> Seems like we focus on baptizing people into the church, not into a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the issue. Somewhere along the history of Christendom, baptism moved away from baptizing people into Jesus Christ into baptizing people into institutions. Is, is a baptism into the Seventh-day Adventist Church and baptism into Jesus Christ one and the same? No. It should be, could be. I mean, a person could uh, experience both simultaneously. What are the benefits? Are there any benefits to doing it the way the Scriptures, the way the Apostles did? Preaching, uh, you know, remember uh, Philip and the eunuch. When he was convicted, right then they were baptized. Peter on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 baptized that day. Was there, is there an advantage, a benefit, if we were to, to go out and do it the Bible way and have people baptized the day they're brought to conviction? Does it offer some advantage we miss? Yeah, the church books would grow. Were they keeping church books back then? No, but we are. <laughs> Each person is able to publicly show their devotion to God and that commitment. Yes, do you think there's something that happens in the individual? I mean, in, in your own experience, those were baptized. Was the experience of baptism um, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally significant to you? Yes. More than just a prayer? The conversion. Yeah, the conversion experience. Uh, do you think that this public baptism experience would, would do something in those who are committing their life to Christ? That, it's, it's, that this public statement would... would, would, would maybe incentivize and maybe even solidify them in this new walk that they want to do. Hmm. Is there a problem? Is there any downside to doing it the way we do it? No, we'll baptize you in six or eight months after a series of Bible studies, make sure you've gotten indoctrinated in the right way, have a sinner's prayer instead. Is, is there any advantage or disadvantage of doing it that way? Yes, Lisa. I just think it's uh, sort of like we don't trust the Holy Spirit to do the work that the Holy Spirit will do in this person's life if we just let them come to Christ. Hmm. In Christ's day, was there a different agenda between what the Holy Spirit wanted to accomplish and what the organized church on earth when Christ was alive on earth was trying to accomplish? Yes. Yeah, there was a different agenda, wasn't there? Yeah. Is there a difference in loyalty to an organization? Yes, back here. Well, one of the things, those people probably knew more about at least 25 of the fundamental beliefs before they were speeder poked to them than those we baptized. Because of where they were. They were in the temple at uh, Pentecost. So they were familiar with most of the fundamental beliefs. Uh, well, that's a possibility, but then I think of what Christ said to those people, and he said, you search the world over to find a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. So they might have known some of the doctrines, but they somehow weren't part of God's kingdom. Yes, they, we can know the fundamental beliefs and be on the wrong team. Just comment on that also. I think historically, to play the devil's advocate, there was a there was a difference between a group in Tennessee that you're or down in Chattanooga that you're going to preach to that you have no idea anything about their background versus the Jews that the three thousand Jews that were converted in a day. They were 
they were, as he's suggesting, very indoctrinated. They understood. Okay, how do we explain the eunuch? Did he grow up in the Jewish system? If you read the passage there, he, he was studying the scripture. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he was obviously aware of something about the Jewish religion. And it said when Peter, or when Philip came to him, that he didn't understand that passage of scripture. So he's reading the scripture. Yeah. And they, he got into the chariot and he reasoned with him and talked for quite a while and explained everything. It says he went back and explained the whole scripture to him about Christ. So there wasn't a sort of spontaneous, no explanation, no talking. It was clearly a very detailed conversation about something. It, it, does anybody hear me suggesting that, that we are having an, an uninformed, uh, non-educated uh, uh, conversion experience, uh, that we just uh, go out and have an emotional experience? Or, uh, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting a very educated experience where we lead people to a knowledge of Christ through the Scriptures, and on that day that they decide they want to give their life to Christ, do we baptize them that day? But I think there's a, there's a difference. We have to do fair look at the difference in audiences. There's a very different kind of audience that we're speaking of in these, in these examples versus the example of Chattanooga. He says there's a different audience. My experience, honestly, has been that it's easier to bring someone to Christ who hasn't been indoctrinated in a distorted, false, legalistic system first. The Pharisees were harder to bring to Christ than the Samaritans were. The Jews at Pentecost. They were very much legalistically brought up in that system. The apostles, if you read the history of the apostles themselves, they couldn't get their mind around what Christ was trying to do because they had been so indoctrinated in this idea that he was coming to rule over the Romans that he, they really didn't even see his crucifixion despite the fact he told it to them repeatedly, repeatedly, and repeatedly. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, that once the conversion happens, then they can go back and they can re-examine all the things they already knew. But having been taught all those things in a distorted light, it can actually make it harder for them to see the truth. Now my burden has been for the last several years what our church practice has been with the youth. I'm talking third, fourth graders, which is the typical age at which we start. The pastor comes over to the school and starts doing Bible studies. Uh, I may be speaking heresy here, but in my mind it is somewhat similar to what you were just speaking to. Yeah, how many teachers, uh, maybe music teachers, art teachers, whatever, have a student that has never been taught anything and a student that has already learned bad habits of practice or play? Which is easier to teach, the one that has not been taught anything or the one who's already developed bad habits of, te- of, of practice? Um, you know, it's often harder to unlearn the things we've learned than to learn something we haven't already you know, solidified ourselves around. I think Christ found this, if you look at the history of his preaching, uh, he got opposition and run out of town by those who thought they knew, but he was always received by the crowds that didn't think they knew anything, like the Samaritans and so forth. So, as we, um, as we think about Pentecost, let me ask you this question. Did they ask those who wanted to be baptized to commit to any type of organizational allegiance, change their diet. Uh, you might argue, though, they already had the right diet and they already were going to church on the right day and they were already uh, eating the right food so they didn't have to deal with any of those issues. Should we, sh- should we require people to give up smoking before we baptize them? No. Do we? Yes. Think that through, yeah. I mean, isn't it true that we are to come to Christ as we are with all of our defects of character and He cleanses our character? We don't fix ourselves up first. Yeah. What would happen, do you think, in, in town if we, our class, went out and did a public series of, of meetings and 
at that meeting, we, after, after a series of meetings where we go through the doctrine, we lead people through the scriptures, and people have come to a conviction, and they wanted to give their hearts to, to the Lord, that we actually baptized them right then. What do you think would happen? Be kicked out of church. <laughs> what do you think would happen? Would, would we be going against scripture to do that? No. 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 Would we be going against church tradition to do that? Yes. How do you think church leadership would respond if we did that? Especially if we didn't have an ordained pastor baptizing, but we did it. They might not let us have Sabbath school in their church, he said. Yeah, Russell said that would never happen. I'm just challenging us to evaluate what we're doing. Uh, I'm not saying, uh, just because we don't do things like the early church did exactly doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. We have air conditioning. They didn't have air conditioning. We record what we're saying, put it on the internet. They didn't record. We do a lot of things they didn't do. Just because we're doing things differently doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But maybe we should ask the question, is it best the way we're doing it? Is the, is, did they have some ideas that maybe were, were more consistent with what God was trying to achieve? Yes. Uh, I've been reading a book called The End of Religion, and the man talks about how God has given us a lot of tools to help us understand him and to have a spiritual experience. But instead of falling in love with him, we've fallen in love with the tools. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yes. What if when one has an intelligent, reasoning picture of God given to them, and they respond by saying, this is a God that I absolutely buy in my heart, and I'd like to be baptized. And instead, you take them from that moment, and then you spend six months trying to change all the behaviors you think they have so that they will now be compatible with your faith in a belief system. And to me, that's the wrong direction. It seems like the character of God and falling in love with God would be the first place, and then every step of reaction to that picture would be enforced by positive things. And then we take it and we put it into another direction of teaching them the 27 fundamental beliefs. And I think sometimes, oftentimes for myself, that was a great destruction because I lost the first grasp that I had and I started studying all of this other stuff to become acceptable into my faith. And you lost, lost the joy and became burdened. Yeah, I yeah. yeah, well said, well said, yes. There is an option of also a profession of faith where a person has been baptized someplace else and we do accept them and profession of faith, and profession of faith is what? What is it? Is it a conversion where you're giving your heart to the Lord, or is it joining joining an organization? Profession of faith is not the, this equal to baptism. No. Profession of faith is organizational transfer. I was organi- organizationally loyal to this organization. Now I'm professing my organizational loyalty to this organization because I was previously baptized in Christ and I'm already a Christian. So profession of faith is not a substitute for baptism. Right. Yes. Do some churches allow you to be baptized without profession of faith? Yes, of course. Some churches do allow baptism because we they baptize infants, and there's no profession of faith for those people, is there? They have no faith. Yes. Are you leading someone to Christ, or are you the tool that God uses? I think this discussion can go that way. I, I've, I've been in Bible studies where you you feel the Holy Spirit leading you as the, the instructor, the teacher. And if you, if you don't go that route um, and you're going on a system like she was talking about, 
here I'm going through this motions of these steps. Where are you leading them? To a denomination or to the Father? Yeah. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, From a human perspective, Jesus' earthly ministry did not look so successful. Though he had attracted a fairly uh, popular following while alive, he did not catch on in mass. Many leaders rejected him, and of course, the Romans crucified him, causing his closest disciples to scatter and flee. When I read this, first thing that went through my mind is, question, is there revisionist history going on in this paragraph? Did you all pick it up? Are we revising and transforming and changing the historical facts? And this is a, a common evangelical theme that has come on in the last, what, 50 years or so, where we have shifted away from holding the Jewish nation accountable for the crucifixion of Christ. We're exonerating and excusing them, and we're blaming the Romans as the ones who crucified Christ. What do you think, what do you think about this process? Do we lose something in the, in the historic narrative? Do we lose something in the spiritual understanding that we should understand about Christ's crucifixion when we shift this to the Romans? Yes. And just to, if you think I'm being wrong about this, I'm going to read to you Matthew 27, 19 through 25, and ask the question, who's responsible human-wise? We know Satan was instigating behind the scenes, but which humans were really responsible for the death of Christ? Was it the Romans? Matthew 27, 19 through 25. While Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in in dreams because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? The governor asked. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They, They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. If it had been legal for them to carry out the crucifixion, they would have done it. Yes, it's no question that, that, that the legal authority, because of the occupation, they couldn't execute Christ without Rome's consent and approval. But was Rome the one seeking the blood of Christ? No. no. In fact, wasn't the Roman governor himself, even though he was pagan, even though he wasn't a Christian, even though he wasn't converted, didn't he have a greater sense of justice trying to protect Christ in his own weak and immoral way? But wasn't he really trying to, to find a way to set Christ free? Yes. What do you think, why do you think, and what do you think the impact is when we take and tell the story that it's the Romans who did this? We shift responsibility. And why, why is this important? Is it honest? Do we fail to recognize, and this is what I think is very important, I'm going to read to you another quotation in a moment, but recognize that those who called themselves children of God but accepted a false picture of God become God's enemies. You see, we don't have a problem if you worship a pagan pantheon. Pagans crucified Christ. That fits perfectly. But it doesn't fit perfectly that those who had the oracles of God claimed to be children of God, were blessed by his, by his uh, prophets and all this other stuff. It doesn't fit perfectly that they could be the ones that crucified Christ. Something's amiss there. It's too close to home. We could, also, we could argue technically that they were also pagan. Yeah, well, yes. And uh, if you want to read Christ's Object Lessons 293, I won't read the whole quote to you, but, uh, but Ellen, Ellen White says that um, the Jewish, Jewish rulers did not love God, therefore they cut themselves away from him 
They envy Christ's beauty of character. She goes on to describe several more things about how they, they uh, uh, be, uh, you know, shouted to crucify Christ and let his blood be on us. And then she said, thus the Jewish leaders made their choice. Their decision was registered in the book, which John saw in the hand of him who sits on the throne. And then, and, and, she, and she holds very clearly, as far as the human responsibility goes, was not rested. Upon the, but, but upon the Roman governor. If you remember, even Christ himself made excuse. Those who know more truth have more responsibility. Christ himself held the nation uh, uh, more responsible. So, why might, we want, why, my, why might Christians want to forget this truth? And this next paragraph in Christ's Object Lessons may give some insight as why we unconsciously want to forget this. Listen to this, Christ's Object Lessons 294. The Jewish people cherished the idea that they were favorites of heaven and that they were always to be exalted as the church of God. They were the children of Abraham, they declared, and so firm did the foundation of their prosperity seem to them that they defied earth and heaven to dispose them of their rights. But by lives of unfaithfulness, they were preparing for the condemnation of heaven and for separation from God. So what was the idea here? They cherish the idea that they were favorites of heaven. Do you think there's any church organizations on earth that cherish the idea that we are favorites of heaven? And they were so insistent upon their their belief that they were favorites of heaven, it says that they defied earth and heaven to dispossess them of their rights. Do we defy earth and heaven to dispossess us of our rights to, to be that group that takes the final message? But unfaithfulness, they were preparing for condemnation. Do you think we don't want to look at this lesson? We want to shift to the Romans because if we look at the lesson of what the Jews did, it comes too close to home of where we stand. Christ said, remember, in the day they will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. Not in the name of Buddha and Hare Krishna, but in the name of Christ. These are Christians. And he said, Yet ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I'm suggesting to you Christianity itself is going to lead the world against Christ. Not agnostics and atheists, but Christians. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, is talking about Monday's lesson. In fact, I'll read it to you. It says, the great, a great part of Protestant worship tradition has been the, notice the word, great part of what Protestant worship tradition. tradition has been the preaching of the word. A sacred responsibility falls upon one given the task to feed the sheep, to teach and to preach and to exhort and to encourage. Music, liturgy, prayer, the Lord's Supper, foot washing, all have a place, but perhaps nothing's more important than what is preached from the pulpit during worship hour. He said, really? First off, and they give examples in the lesson of uh, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, Paul's preaching at Mars Hill. Uh, so I was going to ask examples of biblical preaching. There's two. Pentecost, Marseille, any other examples of biblical preaching? Sermon on the Mount, right? There's a great one, Sermon on the Mount. Stephen, the day he was stoned, he was preaching, wasn't he? Yeah, so we have four, uh, those are the four examples in the New Testament. I could come up with very quickly. Four examples of biblical preaching. And I want you then to examine. Examine. Let's ask some questions. In the, four, in the examples of biblical preaching, who was the audience? Was it converted people who had already been baptized to the Lord? Was that the audience? What was their forum? Where did they meet? 
were they were, were these preaching events regularly scheduled events? No. Were they scripted? Were they paid professional speakers who presented them? Does it matter? No. Do we lose anything if we have regularly scheduled speaking events scripted by professional trained speakers? Well, according to Scripture, when these examples that I all gave you occurred, where did the power come from for their presentations? John 17, 14 through 18, it says, About the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished at it, saying, How does this man have such learning when he was never, has never been taught? Then Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own. Those who speak on their own seek their own glory. What is he saying? How they couldn't understand. How can you possibly speak the way you do having not gone to our Bible homiletics course? You haven't taken homiletics. How do you know how to speak publicly? You haven't taken foreign language. You haven't taken Greek and Hebrew. How can you possibly know anything to speak publicly? Was that all? How about in Acts chapter 4, 8 through 13? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today, uh, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked, How was he healed? Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by, by, by which men must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus." How can they possibly tell us this? They hadn't gone to seminary yet. They weren't on the paid speaking list. Do we lose anything when the role of pastor becomes a career rather than a calling? What do you think would happen in the pastorate of the church? Seriously, I mean the the face of the pastor. Do you think the face of the pastorate would change if they were unpaid and had to provide their own income. As Paul said, I, I do my nets, so you never pay me for what I do. If they were required to provide their own income, and they weren't paid by the organization, do you think the people who stand in front of the church and preach would change? Yes. For the better or the worse? Hmm. Yes. I think not only would it change the pastorate, I certainly think it would change me and all of the rest of us because we would see more of our responsibility and our part in preparation and study and presentation and willingness to be used by the Holy Spirit in finishing God's work. Just what we talked about last week, how, as we think about who is the church? Who are the priests in the church? Who is to be doing the priestly work in the church? I didn't hear an answer. You are. All of us in here are the priests. We are to be ministering one to another. 
And what is it? What is the purpose of this body, this organization, the, what the scripture calls the body of Christ? When it comes together and meets, what is its function? What is its purpose? Good entertainment? What's its purpose? To instruct us. Isn't the purpose of the church for us to be edified, enabled, developed in heart, mind, and character so that as we leave our community together, go out into the world, we are salt on the earth. We are lights in the world. That we are representatives of Christ and that we come together for the purpose of each one of us ministering to each other to build the body, to help edify and develop the character of Christ within us. That we love each other. And that requires, now think this through, if all of you were music students, and you came each week to hear a professional musician play, but you never get a chance to sit at the music seat yourself to play. You go out each week and talk about what wonderful music you heard, but how, what wonderful music can you make? Do you see a problem? Aren't we to come together for each of us to practice doing these things, helping and ministering to each other? In the New Testament church, did they come together in a passive way to be lectured in a form where they couldn't interact? We talked about the preaching of the biblical examples when they're preaching to the non-converted, but when the church actually met together, wasn't it didactic? Wasn't I'm not, not didactic, interactive. Wasn't it interactive? Wasn't there discussion? Wasn't there one ministering to the other? And the scriptures are clear. You can look it up on your own. 1 Corinthians 14.26 and Colossians 3.12-16 about how every one of us is to be doing this with each other. So I'm going to suggest the purpose of the church is for us to put into practice our ability to love one another. What do you think? When do you think more character development and down-to-earth brass tacks overcoming of defects occurs in our weekly church service or a weekly AA meeting? Now you think that through. Where should more overcoming be happening? If it's not, we should ask some questions. And along this line of how we function as a church, let's jump to Thursday's lesson. It's about love conquers all. It's the title, Love Conquers All. And, and brass tacks putting into practice, I received an email this week. This is the email I received this week. You're a minister in the church. I want you to put yourself in the role that one of your fellow classmates came to you with this email. Dr. Jennings, I have a friend who has been with her husband for many years, and he has cheated much of those years. He is a good father, and the question and the lesson is, love conquers all. Okay? How do we deal? What does love do? You're, you're a minister of, 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 of the, you're a priest in God's church. Somebody's come to you with a problem. How do you minister God's love in this situation? Um, her husband, uh, many years, and he has cheated for much of those years. He is a good father and the children love him. This woman has been an obedient child of Christ and staying with her husband. Last year, she had had enough and finally divorced him. He came back and wanted to mend his marriage, but continues to sin with other women and every week still comes home and sleeps in another room in the house. My sister in Christ would like her marriage to heal, but cannot take this cheating. God wants, God wants her to stay in this marriage. Oh, excuse me. Does God want her to stay in this marriage when her husband continues like this? Role modeling evil behavior in the house. I believe God does not want her to live in pain. What do you respond? What would Hosea do? What would Hosea do? So we have a response over here that's meaning your implication that she should just accept it. Okay, one response, accept it. Yes, your response. I think what you're talking about is what should 
she do, not what he should do, what should she do? And that has to be colored by what would love do, not what her needs are. What does he need? And that's very a very deep subject. Does he need to keep coming back and and not having to face any consequences? Probably not. But what is the motivation and what is driving it? Is it his needs or her her actions driven by his needs or her needs? What do you say? You're a minister of Christ. You're a priest in his church. Someone's come to you, member of your of the body. What? How do you counsel? I think accountability is the highest form of love. And if she holds him accountable, he has a chance to change and be saved. If she doesn't hold him accountable, he'll never change. He will be lost. So here's my initial response. Of course God does not want anyone to live in a deceitful, exploitive, selfish relationship where trust doesn't exist. Her husband doesn't love her, and until she realizes it, she will fail to be able to love him. The most loving action, the most loving action for her is to hold him accountable for his untrustworthy character and throw him out. She should only allow him back when he has demonstrated reliable, documentable, credible evidence that he is trustworthy and loves her more than he loves himself. His words are meaningless. His actions demonstrate an immature husband who is not qualified to be a husband. Or father. Or father. Her response back. But Dr. Jennings, can a person still love his wife and give in to the flesh? He has to love her. Why would he come back to be with her and the children? The Bible says to forgive, so she has forgiven. And when we marry, aren't we supposed to stay married? God wants us to keep our families together, doesn't he? It's confusing when there is emotional abuse to know what God would have us do. It must be possible to have the Holy Spirit guide us out of bad relationships and focus on God. At the same time, when emotionally leaving someone, we may feel like we are hurting them, because, but be, but be strong, and it feels like uh, we are being unloving. Now, you're the priest. How do you respond? He's made his choice. She needs to let him have it. You know, if she lets him come back... She needs to let him have it. You mean the fry pan over the head? <laughs> He's made his choice to go be with somebody else. Okay. If she keeps letting him come back, then she's not letting him have his choice to be away from her. Okay. Over here. One of the things is the response. You hear a lot of, it feels like this, it feels like that. Um, this sounds like this, this person is being led by feelings. Emotions, which is deceitful. Okay. Scripture says something about not letting creeps into the house. For example, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 5, and 6 uh, says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away Mm -hmm. by divers lust. So maybe it needs to be... Wow. That's pretty warm, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yes, way in the back corner. Uh, yes, uh, so many times people forget, I mean, do not realize what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is also having to do with restitution. Uh, God, when he forgave, he forgave David, but there were const- consequences. David paid for his sin. Nevertheless, even though he, had, he repented, and uh, in a home, if you forgive, 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 and never take care of what's really there, it's gonna it's gonna eat away at the human heart. It's gonna eat away at the relationship, and it's gonna eat away at the home. 
and finally it will disintegrate into something terrible. So, this woman still needs to take care of, still needs to hold this man accountable. So I, I, I hear a consensus here that love can't turn a blind eye to this time of treatment, that if you act in love, there needs to be some accountability. So my response, my second response back, love does what's right because it's right, not because it feels right. Love is the principle of selfless giving for the benefit of the other's welfare and happiness. In this case, neither husband nor wife act upon love toward the other. The husband acts in self-interest and deceives his wife with his emotional attachment he calls love, and the wife deceives herself, allowing him to stay calling it loving as she colludes with a path that is destructive to his character and ruining him for heaven. If If she loved him, she would not cooperate with him by allowing him to stay, but would hold him accountable. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He works by presenting truth to our minds. When we choose to reject the truth, we close our minds to the Spirit. In this case, which of them doesn't know the truth about adultery? Which of them doesn't know the truth of its destructiveness and its selfishness? Which of them doesn't know the truth that they try to hide from because it will be, it will be painful to deal with? But love does what's right because it's right. Look at Gethsemane, the greatest act of love. What were Christ's emotions? They were not pleasant. Love is not mere emotions, but harmony with God's character despite emotions. What do you all think? Neither of them understand. Am I being too harsh? No. And the response back? The response back, this is the final response. You are sound and correct as much as it is difficult to listen to. I will share this with her. She only wants to do what is right and needs our prayers and support. Please pray for her, and I will, Brother Jennings. Thank you for being here for us. Your wisdom helped me very much, and I will pass all your teaching on. Again, thank you, and thank you for your time. Both parents have a responsibility to the children also. Yes. And it's unclear how much the children understand what's going on. I didn't get the ages of the kids. I didn't get their, yeah, I didn't get the participation of what's going on there. But you're right. Uh, this type of modeling is not good. Do each of us in the church help each other, hold each other accountable, accountability in the church? Do we love each other enough to get our hands dirty, to wash dirty feet metaphorically? That was a metaphor. What is the dirty feet representative of? The dirty sin in our lives. Do we help each other overcome the problems? Or or are we more like the Pharisees that we don't want to get down into the dirt? Yes, somewhere in the... Yeah, I was just going to say that both of them need help a lot. Not just from God, but from uh, people that can help them see this clearly and encourage them moment by moment as they question their feelings and all that. Both of them need real help there. Do you understand the difference between emotionalism and love? Emotional attachment and love. Parents, it's most easy to see when you think about your your kids. What you do for your kids, you often do because you understand it's good for them when it doesn't feel good to do it. Giving them vaccines is a great example. I don't know any parent that enjoys that experience. But you do it because you want to protect them. That's what love does. But love is often, um, that's why you can understand God in the Old Testament, how it tore his heart out to do some of the things he did, but he had to do it because they needed it. And sadly, though, many people look at the Old Testament and what God was doing because of their need and think that God is angry, wrathful, and enjoys being mean. He doesn't enjoy being stern and firm. Wednesday, let's see, what lesson are we jumping to now? Um, Wednesday's lesson. Yeah. Yes. Getting back to your suggestion about holding one another accountable, 
we need to be very careful with that because that often devolves into judgmentalism or gets misunderstood as being judgmental. Doesn't Ellen White tell us that when we love someone else enough to die for them, then we can then we can start. Yeah, yeah. We uh, in the quote it's uh, you know we need to call sin by its right name. You see your brother in sin and believe it's your responsibility to hold him accountable. When you love him enough that you would give his life for him, then then you're the one that can go talk to him about his sin. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. The holding accountable in this context, of course, was somebody coming to you with a problem and then presenting a problem in that context of a marriage situation where you obviously have a responsibility to react to what's going on. Yeah, but you're right. In the church, we don't need to be going around and, um, and, and putting our, our nose into someone else's circumstances who are not open to our involvement into their life. Yeah. We have to wait till times are right and ready. Um, Wednesday's lesson... In the fourth paragraph, it says, well, actually, the, the, yeah, the fourth paragraph, it says, It is fascinating that Paul was charged with persuading people toward a different kind of worship, a worship contrary to the law. Even the Jews who believed in Jesus at the time leveled a similar ac- accusation against Paul. The point in Acts 18 is that these people were so caught up in tradition, so caught up in how things were done in the past, so caught up by forms of worship, that when Paul presented, to them, presented them with the one who was the whole purpose of their worship, the one whom they worshipped without knowing it, the one whom all the worship services really pointed to, they rejected what he said. So caught up were they in the law itself, they missed the one to whom the law pointed. Again, through our circumstances today, though our circumstances there are radically different from Paul's back then, we need to be careful not to allow our forms and traditions to get in the way of what our faith really should be about. Any worship that does not lead us directly to the cross is misguided. What do you think about this? That makes us think that our traditions are any better than, say, the Catholic tradition. Because they're ours! <laughs> the traditions cause you to focus on what you're doing. It's like, well, I've done it all right, so I'm, now I'm good, instead of focusing on the fact that I have sinned and I need Jesus to cover me. You know, to think about Jesus instead of instead of thinking about yourself, the traditions. Don't yeah, traditions do have a tendency to make us more self-focused, don't they? Right. Well, did the water get too high on my knee while I was waiting on Sabbath? <laughs> One thing I've really learned over the last couple of months and years in this class is it's really important to understand what a tradition is, just to stop and think about that concept. And even when we were talking about baptism earlier in Sabbath school, that was just a tradition, and the first baptism didn't occur with Jesus and John. Those were happening not just in that group, but that concept was something that had developed as I understand it. Baptism is just a tradition. It has a very specific purpose, but we have to stop and think, what is tradition? What is the Sabbath tradition? What is the purpose behind it? And not just do an act over and over again and forget what that act is pointing to. Yes, see, traditions can lull us into a false spiritual security where we have our traditional checklist of weekly behaviors. And if we go through our checklist of weekly behaviors, we we clean the house, get our shopping done, fill the car up with gas all before sunset on Friday. We make sure that we have our sundown worship, bringing in the Sabbath. 
we um, you know get up in time, uh, you know, make sure the kids have had their bath before before Sabbath. Get up in time on Sabbath morning to get to church, go to church, pay our tithe, pay our offering, um, participate appropriately in the service at, at both worship and Sabbath school. Go home, go for a walk in nature. Make sure we guard the edges of the Sabbath and have a Sabbath um, uh, worship or, or a little Vesper service before the Sabbath ends. And then we've done our checklist and we can feel righteous. We're all good. We're good. We're good. We've got our tradition, and we follow our traditional checklist. And as long as we follow our traditional checklist, and if something falls out that traditional checklist, like, wait a minute, um, you guys threw a football on Sabbath afternoon in the park? Or a Frisbee? Now, that's weekly activity. That's not appropriate. Have you went horseback riding on Sabbath? That's work to saddle a horse. Um, you see, now we're, we're stepping outside of tradition. You may think this is a big deal. In America, we love to go horseback riding on Sabbath. I know some places in Europe, it's work because you have to saddle a horse different tradition. Or, well, we certainly can't go out to a restaurant on Sabbath and pay money. You can't use money on Sabbath. It's, it's, that's buying and selling. It's doing work. But you know what? We can have a retreat down at Cutter Springs. And at Cutter Springs, we can have a Sabbath meal as long as we pay for it ahead of time and we get a ticket. And we can turn in our ticket, which is a piece of paper that has a certain value we can exchange for goods and services, and we can exchange that ticket for our meal, but we can't use a dollar bill, which is what? A piece of paper that has value for goods and services. Hmm. Wow. We have tradition. And a dollar bill is sinning, but a piece of paper that we've bought ahead of time is not. Yes, we have our traditions. And we sure get uncomfortable if somebody upsets the apple cart of tradition, don't we? So it said in the lesson quarterly, in the last paragraph, it says that it all should lead back directly to the cross. And if it doesn't, it's misguided. I'm going to suggest to you that Satan has embraced the cross and has twisted its meaning. And he champions the cross through the dark ages. What was the symbol of the church that abused the world? What was on the shields? What was on their chest? What was, what was it they held as the banner high? The cross. What do they still hold as the banner high? The cross. Is it possible to embrace the cross, lead everybody to the cross, and teach such a twisted idea of what the cross meant that you actually are God's enemy? Again, those who will lead the world against God will be the Buddhists. What does the scripture teach who will do this? Who will be the leaders out in this process? Those who hold to the cross. And so it's not just a leading to the cross, it's leading to a right understanding of all that was revealed and done for us at the cross. And I've got a list and I want to lead you through some things that, that with scriptural references that the cross is supposed to teach us. And we can contrast that with the stuff that the cross has been, mis- mis- been misrepresented to teach. Yes. For clarity's sake, you're not saying that someone can't do these things that we as a church hold special and and not be wrong. I mean, they could be done in the right spirit. It's the, it's the purpose they're doing, though. Not just falling in love with those tools and forgetting the God of the tools. What if it's a belief and not a tradition? What if you believe these things not because of what you were taught or raised, but you truly believe it in your heart to be what that's your faith? We have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. Power to heal and power to destroy. We may believe it, 
The question is, is our belief true? Then, but what you're saying to me, this is what I gathered from what you just said, okay? You present the Sabbath as no different than any other day. Did I? I'm telling you, that's what I got out of it. Nobody else might have, but I'm saying, you, it's like the Sabbath, you can treat it like any other day of the week. It is a special day. You are supposed to do things different on the Sabbath than you do any other day of the week. It is supposed to be more sacred and holy to you than just any other day. Did, I, did, did anybody else hear me suggest the Sabbath was the same as any other day of the week? No. I it was okay to play football. Uh, did I? <laughs> only, only if you have to say a Bible verse if you drop it. It's Bible football. You see, I'm being facetious, tongue-in-cheek, because this is exactly what we do. We'll take something and we'll say, um, well, you can't throw the football unless after every time you drop it, you say a Bible verse. Well, then it's Bible football and you can do it on that. Don't we do this kind of stuff? Yes. Where is it said in Scripture, thou shalt not toss a football back and forth on Sabbath? Doesn't it depend on the context and the situation and the hard attitude? How about the person throwing the football happens to be um, the big brother for an inner city kid who doesn't have a daddy and he's spending some time with him on Sabbath afternoon to get to know him and they're talking while they're tossing the football back and forth? Well, I still think it goes back to the reason you do the things that you do. Because when you present it in the light that everybody that does this, it's almost like they're fanatical if they stand for something they do believe in. And they call it tradition if it's something they really believe. But the traditions didn't feel like they are based on freedom growing up. There were always arbitrary rules. And I heard them all my life growing up. We had a friend in, uh, in Keene, Texas, that really liked a bike ride. I mean, this guy was heavy into bike riding. He wouldn't go with us bike riding on Sabbath because to him it was a sport. It was aggressive. It was see how he could jump, see how he could. And so his attitude was different. So he wouldn't do that on Sabbath. So when we were with him, we did other activities besides bicycling. It, it, it is the heart that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so again, um, it's not. And one, what tradition does. Is tradition takes a checklist of external behaviors and says that either bike riding is right or bike riding is wrong, not leaving it up to the heart of the individual in their relation with God to decide whether bike riding is right, right or wrong yet. That's why judge not that you be not judged. We all come to our experience from different places, and the Sabbath is a special time and a special day. If anyone heard me suggest otherwise, then they misheard because I wasn't suggesting that. But we, are, we don't stand in the place of God, and we have no right to look at somebody else who goes bike riding on Sabbath and say, hey, that's sinful because you're going bike riding on Sabbath, but you, in your personal journey or experience, might not be able to go bike riding on Sabbath and, and do that with a clear conscience. One quick example. Imagine your grandmother was in an ICU on a ventilator. She's 93. She's had a stroke. The doctors come and say, she's brain dead. There's nothing we can do for her. We'd like to take her off the ventilator and let nature take its course. You and your brother are the guardians and have to make this decision. And you make the decision in your mind. You think, well, if I do that, that's no problem. I'm just pulling an artificial support, and nature will take its course. So she'll be delivered. Die. Your brother thinks, no, if I do that, I'll murder my grandmother. If he believes it's murdering grandmother to do that, can you both make that decision with the same consequence to your characters, consciences, or not? No, the brother makes the decision to do it. If he believes he's murdering his grandmother, he, he will suffer from guilt. He will suffer from shame. He will suffer from damage to his mind. Even though it may not be an objective reality murdering, if that's his belief, it damages him. And so our beliefs do matter. The question is, do we hold healthy beliefs? Satan gets his power over people by instilling in their minds false beliefs. He's the father of lies. 
This is why you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And this is why the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth and love. We present the truth and love and leave people free. And so we have a, pro- a, pro- a process in the church where we present ideas to leave people to wrestle these things out, setting people free to come to their own conclusion, loving you, whether you, if you believe you're murdering grandma to pull, I'll love you just as much, okay, that's all right. I'm not going to make you see it another way, but I don't see it that way. Can you love me if I don't see it that way? You see? Leaving people free to come to their own conclusion. I want to go to some of the examples of what we're to learn at the cross before we run out. Because I think this is critical. Because we all have this idea we come to the cross, but I'm going to suggest to you the cross has been abused and used to teach a distorted view of God that holds people captive. So what do we actually learn at the cross? What are the lessons there to be taught at the cross? And you guys know some of them. They're quite obvious. Number one, God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brothers. Uh, In a, a book called Acts of the Apostles, we see Christ's death proves God's great love for man. Proves God's great love. The cross brings us near to God, reconciling us to him. Without the cross, man would have no union with the Father. From it shines the light of the Savior's love. And this is not an emotionalism. When we understand love as the law of love, the principle upon which life is built, the cross is the place where the law of love destroyed the law of sin and death, where the law of love overcame the desire to act in self-interest, where love shines forth as the principle upon which all life is built. Through the cross, we learn that the Heavenly Father loves us with a love that is infinite. This is what we learn at the cross. Number one, God is love. Number two, We've revealed God's character, that he never uses his power to force his way. John 13 tells us that all, all power was given to Jesus. He got down on his knees, washed his feet, and then on the cross, does he still have all power at his disposal? Could he, if he wanted, act to wipe out the crowd? But we, what do we learn at the cross? That Christ, possessing all power, never uses power in self-interest. He won't harm his creatures, even if his creatures are abusing him. We learn something about the one who holds all power. And thus, when we see in Revelation, the angelic host looking at Christ, they say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have power because he's proven he's the only one safe in the universe with all power. Um, it was to vind- and we read in, in Patriarchs and Prophets 68 um, that it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe that Christ came and fulfilled his purpose at the cross. We will draw all unto me, Christ said. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all. Not all men. The Greek in the New Testament will draw all unto me, all beings in the universe. Number three, we learn the value of the human soul. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons 196. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner Christ has, ha, would have laid down his life, you may estimate the value of a soul. Your value you learn at the cross when you see what Christ did. Four, security of the heavenly universe. Christ, uh, excuse me, um, Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. Did you know that things in heaven needed the blood of Christ to reconcile and bring security to the universe above? There is a movement I've heard recently of former Adventists that are putting out publications attacking this idea of the great controversy, attacking this idea that God's character was, was brought into question, attacking the idea that Christ, part of Christ's mission was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Um, it's, I just read something this week about it. It's quite insidious, actually, um, as you read this. Well, this is out of uh, 5 B.C. 1132. That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. 
the significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against defection of the unfallen worlds. See, there's an additional meaning. It's so much bigger than just you or me. See, these other movements want to put self at the center, put mankind at the center. It's all about me. It's all about you. Christ died just for me and you. No, God is always at the center. Tell 2 Corinthians 10 and other places that we war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Fifth reason, to expose Satan as a liar and fraud. It says, to the angels in the fallen worlds, the cry, it is finished, had deep significance. It was for them as well as for us that the great work of redemption had been accomplished. They with us share the fruits of Christ's victory. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to angels or the unfallen world. The arch apostate had clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. So another reason for the cross was to expose Satan as liar and fraud. That's Desire of Ages 758. Uh, number six, to destroy Satan's power. This is Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. I wish we had time to explain what that means, but his death destroyed the devil's power. Uh, number seven, to destroy the carnal nature. Selfishness in the human soul. First John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. To destroy the devil's work. What was work? This is out of Lift Them Up, page 48. Man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God and designed to be a counterpart of God, but Satan has labored. What's another word for labored? Worked. Satan has worked to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him his own image. Christ destroyed Satan's work by perfectly restoring God's image back in man in his journey on earth. And the last, he came to destroy death. 2 Timothy 1.10. Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Christ accomplished so much for us at the cross. And did you notice not one of these reasons was to pay our legal debt or pay our legal penalty? Not one of these reasons. This is part of the distorted idea that comes because the little horn power changed our concept of law from the natural law of love upon which God built his universe to the imposed law that governments oppose upon its creatures with imposed penalties that have to be paid in legal arbitrary fashion. That is the distorted cross view that leads us to an enslaved mentality rather than back to the freedom in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ wants to restore in us his law, write his law in our hearts and minds that we can live in harmony with him and his kingdom. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have accomplished all of these things for us. We have so much to meditate upon, so much to think about, so much to learn, so much to unlearn. We ask that your spirit of truth will come and lighten our minds. Take all that Christ has achieved. Reproduce in us your character of love that we may go out from this place, that we may minister from one another, that we may go out into this world and love as you have loved us, and that this group may come into a greater harmony, greater unity, greater experience of what you designed your church to be. May we fulfill your role, your, your, your purpose for us as priests of God, that we can begin your priestly ministry, ministering to one another loving one another, practicing the principles of your kingdom, rather than just hearing about them, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.